Hi, this is the Organisational Success Academy from the Oxford Review, bringing you the very latest research in leadership, management, organisational development, design, transformation and change, human resources and human capital, organisational learning, coaching and work psychology from around the world to make you the most up-to-date and knowledgeable person in the room. Today, I'd like to welcome Professor Olivier Siboney, who works at HEC in Paris and the Side Business School here in Oxford. Olivier um, is a writer, an educator and a consultant who specialises in strategy, strategic decision making and the organisation of decision processes. And he's the co-author with Daniel Kahneman, Cass uh, Sunstein, of the book Noise, A Flaw in Human Judgment, published by HarperCollins. Welcome, Olivier. Thank you, David. It's lovely to be here. It's really nice to talk to you, actually. Loved the book. Um, can you just give us a little brief overview of your background and what kind of led you into being part of writing this book? So I'm not an academic by training. I was actually a management consultant for 25 years. I worked at McKinsey. And about six years ago, I left McKinsey and decided to work as a professor and to specialize in this topic of decision-making. And the reason really is that having been able to observe decisions from the, the privileged position of this semi-outsider, semi-insider that you are as a consultant, it gave me a lifelong fascination for how decisions are made and how sometimes they are poorly made. So that led me to study cognitive biases and from biases to start working with some of the people who know the topic much better than me. And that led to noise together with Danny Kahneman and Cass Sunstein. Lovely. So just to start us off, what are you referring to? What is noise? It's very simple. Um, noise is the unwanted variability of human judgments. At least that's how we define it. You could define noise in many different ways. Statisticians have other definitions. And you know, we, we all know what noise is on the street. But we define it as the unwanted variability of human judgment. The key word here is unwanted. And, and before we get into what noise is and how bad it is, it's very important to preface this by saying that there's a lot of situations, a lot of situations where variability is great. Diversity is great. Creativity is great. Innovation is great. Political pluralism is great. In all situations where it's okay to disagree, or even it's actually desirable to disagree, we certainly should. So let's put that aside. Disagreements make markets. Yes, they do. Disagreements and creativity make innovations. Absolutely. Diversity in tastes is wonderful. It certainly is. All of this is great. Now, when you're going to a doctor and he tells you one thing and you go to a second doctor and he tells you something completely different, they are not being creative, they are not being diverse, they are not being innovative. One of them, at least, if not both, are being wrong. And that sort of variability in judgments where we expect less variability or no variability is what we call noise. And our central thesis is that there is a lot more of it in human judgments than we think. It is a lot more damaging in organizational judgments than we assume. And it can and should be tackled much more actively than it is. 
Yes, and I, I, th- I think it's more prevalent in human judgment making than most people assume. So we're talking about noise in judgment making, and in the book you make this distinction between judgment making and thinking. Can you just explain that? Well, that, that's what I was trying to allude to. You know, judgment is not synonymous with thinking because a lot of thinking is not what we call judgment and professional judgment here. If you're you know, thinking about whether you like Bob Dylan better than Taylor Swift, you know, that takes some thinking, I'm sure. And not for me, but for some people, it would probably require some thinking. That's not a judgment in which we expect agreement. When you are being creative about something, that's a very important type of thinking. We don't expect agreement. So we, we have an intentionally narrow definition of judgment here for, for the purposes of this book, which is judgments where we expect people not to stray too far from the same answer, where we have an expectation of bounded disagreement. Of course, if we call something a matter of judgment, that implies that we don't expect people to be in perfect agreement. Otherwise, we wouldn't say it's a matter of judgment. We would say it's a matter of fact or calculation, and there would be no debate. When we say something is a matter of judgment, we expect some disagreement. The surprise is not its existence, its magnitude. It's the fact that there is a lot more of it than we think there is going to be. And and there's a wider, I suppose, there are wider uh, latitude of judgments that occur within organizations, whereas what we're talking about here is an accuracy of judgment within, as you say, bounded disagreements, so that it's tighter and more accurate. At least we we expect it to be tighter. Let's take some examples to bring this Mm. to life. You you take fingerprint examiners who are looking at fingerprints and trying to decide if a latent print from a crime scene matches an exemplar print from a suspect. If they disagree, we have a problem. Now, we imagine that maybe they would disagree once in a million. At least we've been conditioned to think that this is the sort of accuracy that we should expect. It's a lot more than that. It's a lot more than that than they, that they disagree. And it's unfortunately a lot more than that that there is going to be error as a result. Mm. Doctors looking at x-rays or mammograms or stuff like that, there is a lot more disagreement than we assume. Judges, judicial judges, looking at the same cases, the same trials, can have completely different reads on what punishment the the person who's been found guilty should receive. Those aren't insignificant situations. Those are situations with very serious consequences and where the the quantity of noise that we find is at a minimum surprising and in some cases downright you know flabbergasting yes yes and as you say in the case of judges and you, you use this example in the book about the variability of sentences that people with very similar crimes can get depending on uh, the judge but also depending on the time of day and a whole series of other factors yeah. that can create variability where you wouldn't expect it. So when we say very similar crimes, we dangerous territory here because yes. uh, practitioners of the judicial system would say no two crimes are identical. No two cases are 
the same. And that's why we need the, the immense wisdom of the judges to distinguish the special, unique features of each situation. And I do not dispute that. We totally agree with that. What we should consider are situations that are artificial situations, study situations, in which you give a number of judges the same case. In fact, you give them a simplified case. One study, one fairly large study that we talk about in the book, it's also an old study, but I don't think it would be very different if we did it today, it might be worse, is a study in which 200 federal judges in the US looked at the same vignettes. And you find that the mean difference between two judges or the median difference between two judges, more precisely, is roughly half, a little bit more than half of the mean sentence. If the mean sentence is seven years, pick two judges at random, you're going to have one who says five and the other who says nine. That means that in half of the cases, the difference is going to be larger than that, of course. Now, that hasn't got anything to do with the crime, anything to do with the defendant. It's got everything to do with the judge. It's hard to imagine that you know, Congress or whoever, in whatever country you're in, but Congress in the US intended that to be the case, intended the identity of the judge to be such a large determinant of the punishment. And then there is the problem you mentioned, which is that within the same judge, extraneous circumstances like the time of day or the weather or whether the judge's favorite football team lost the game yesterday seem, based on large econometric mm. studies, to have a discernible, not a large impact, but a discernible impact on the sentences that meet out. And that, again, is troubling. Now, a lot of people would assume that this is a bias. And I suppose the question is, what's the difference between noise and a bias? And how are they connected? So each of these factors that I've described, to the extent that you can identify them, can be called a bias. So you can say the fact that judges are more severe on hot days than on cool days is arguably a bias. The fact that one judge is more severe than another is certainly a bias of the judge. What creates the noise in a system is the variability of those biases from one person to the next when the system allocates those individuals to cases randomly. From the perspective of the judicial system, or from the perspective of one defendant facing the judicial system, the fact that you're going to be assigned to judge A or judge B is essentially random. And if your sentence is largely dependent on that, from your perspective, that's an entirely unpredictable outcome. Therefore, it's noise. If you were told that the system as a whole is biased against a certain category to which you happen to belong, that would be a predictable deviation, an average deviation from what would be a just sentence. And you would be able to say, there is a bias in this system, a bias against people like me. But this isn't what we're talking about here. It's the random effect of a number of different inputs, some of which can rightly be called biases, which creates a completely random and unpredictable outcome. That's why we call it noise. Got you. 
Okay. And I, I just want to skip on a little bit because in chapter 17, you refer to, or you conclude actually, that noise is a larger component of decision or judgment error than bias. Can you just explain this a little bit? We conclude, or I should say we speculate, because one of the things that we intended in writing this book is to inspire more people to do research on noise and to get better data on noise. Let's backtrack a second. Why are we writing this book now and it hasn't been written 20 years ago at the same time as a lot of the work on biases? Because people don't notice noise as, as easily as they do bias. You know, noise is harder to wrap your mind around. Bias has a sort of charisma. It's a, it's a nice culprit. We, we love to be able to point our finger at bias and to say, ha, that's the reason we're making so many mistakes. Noise isn't that sexy. Noise is is a statistical construct. It takes many observations to diagnose it. And you know, once you become aware of it, it's a very real problem. But there hasn't nearly been as much research on it. In fact, much of the data that we found on noise was trying to find something else. It sometimes was trying to find bias. Sometimes it was trying to measure accuracy. Sometimes it was something completely different, which is in part why it took us so long to uh, find that research and to write this book. So we're hoping that there's going to be more research that can answer definitively and, and certainly in more situations, the question of, is there more bias or more noise? Having said that, why do we speculate that noise is at least as large a problem in general as bias, which is a very broad and probably overgeneralizing conclusion? Two reasons. First, that's the case in the studies where we've been able to compare that. In all the studies, and there aren't that many, but in all the studies where we've been able to look, noise counts for more error than bias. And the second more, you know, more principled answer, I guess, is if bias was as large as noise, it would be obvious. You know, if we, we measure noise as standard deviation. To make a long story short and, and fairly simple and certainly uh, understandable to, to your audience here, David, if you have a bias of one standard deviation, that's a pretty large bias. Yeah. So, and if you have on, on any measure a bias that equals plus or minus one standard deviation, it's very unlikely that you are not going to notice it and fix it. Mm. So it stands to reason that there is more noise than bias simply because noise expressed in standard deviations, i.e. in units of noise, would be intolerable if it were more than one. Yes, yeah, I agree. And in fact, you've just referred to system noise and you're kind of separating out noise within a judgment and system noise. What are you referring to here? What, what is system noise and why is it an issue for organizations? System noise is what we're talking about when we say the judicial system is a lottery. From the perspective of one individual, you don't know and you can't know and there is no predictability mm. of the judgment that you're going to get. So as a system, the judicial system has noise. As a system, the medical system has noise because different doctors or the same doctor at different times are going to give different judgments. When we describe it this way, we, we highlight the fact that noise is a problem of organizations. It's a problem of systems. 
you as a person, people sometimes ask us, what, what can I do to become less noisy? You as a person can't do much to be less noisy. You can try to be more disciplined in your thinking and more rigorous and so on. But what defines noise to a large extent is how your judgment differs from the person sitting in the office next door who is expected to produce identical or similar judgment to yours. And you only control part of that. The other part of that is the person sitting next door and all the other people sitting on the other offices of the same floor. So noise is a problem of organizations. That's why we call it system noise, to highlight that. And that helps us to then break it down into its component parts and to be able to uh, tear them apart, basically. And it's that disparity in judgment across people that we expect to be experts and have an actual tighter agreement with with their judgments. And in the book, you refer to the illusion of agreement. Can you just explain this? So we mentioned the illusion of agreement in, in a couple of contexts. The, the, the main context is if you're one of those experts, let's take an example that we that we have in the book of experts in an insurance company who uh, are, for instance, underwriters who set the price of insurance policies, the premium that a customer is going to have to pay. These people are experts. They are you know, actuaries. They've been trained for many years in the company. They are following the rules and the procedures of the company. And they fully expect that if one of their colleagues was looking at the same case, she would come very close to their judgment. They are very surprised when they discover that is far from being the case. The quantity of noise is roughly five times larger than they expect in that organization. And that surprises them because they had been living under the illusion of agreement. They, they were living under the illusion that if someone else whom they respect and trust and who has the same training and background had a chance to see the same evidence that they see, she would, of course, concur with them or, or disagree very mildly because, hey, we're not machines, we can disagree a little bit. But they, they have no idea that this illusion of agreement is an illusion. That's one of the, the main reasons why we don't pay attention to noise, we don't notice it, and why people, when they discover this book, say, wow, I, it's obvious, and at the same time, I had never thought about it, that's really troubling. Yeah, and I like just taking this into organizations and organizations failing to, well, pay any attention to the noise that exists within their organization, particularly in kind of judgment making, decision making. Can you give us some examples of that kind of organizational noise? Well, that's the, the, the other sort of um, deafness to noise or blindness to noise, I'm not sure how to call it, is mm. indeed organizational. So as individuals, we live in the illusion of agreement organizations, in fact, perpetuate that illusion and, and maintain that illusion by making sure in many subtle ways, and sometimes in not so subtle ways, that noise does not get revealed, that it does not get exposed. In that insurance company, it is a bit embarrassing to realize that there is such a large discrepancy between two experts. So, it makes sense from an organizational standpoint to make sure that in fact, two underwriters do not look at the same case and that this 
at least not separately. And that mm. if they do look at the same case, they actually discuss it while they're looking at it and get a chance to exchange their views and to converge. When we are hiring someone and, and both of us are interviewing this candidate, the common practice is in most companies is not for us to interview the candidate completely separately. Yes, of course, we're going to meet him separately, but if you've seen him first, you might come to me and say, it would be great if you could see this candidate rather quickly because, well, I don't want to bias you, but you know, see him, right? You've biased me. If you had come and said, oh, it would be good if you saw this candidate, you know, see him when you have a moment, I'd, I'd just like to get your thoughts on him. Right? You mean this is fairly subtle. I mean, I'm not too subtle, but you know, fairly subtle. Sometimes it's not nearly that subtle. You walk into the meeting to discuss the candidate, and the head of the department says, I think we found the perfect woman for the job. What do you guys think? <laughs> so, and we've all been there, right? Mm. So organizations do this because it saves them the trouble of dealing with noise. And it's a very widespread thing. We have several stories about it in the book. My favorite one is a university where the admissions department had several people review the, the, the files of candidates. And their practice was that the first person would write her notes on the file and then pass it on to someone else. So one of the researchers we, we interviewed told us he recommended to that university that they should not do that. They should make sure that the judgments should be independent and that the second person should not see what the first person had written when she was making her judgment. And their answer was, oh yeah, of course we know that. And in fact, that's how we used to do it. But we disagreed so much that we decided to switch to the current system, which you know, really tells you that this organization, like many other organizations, values consensus and agreement more than accuracy. Yes, and it's that kind of closing your ears to that kind of noise that creates those kinds of problems. Exactly. What, what, one of the other concepts that, that you explain in the book is, is the idea of naive real and the impact that it has within organizations. Could you just explain that? Because that's really Naive realism is the illusion of agreement that I was talking about earlier. Mm. It's the fact that if I'm one of those underwriters, or at least is the root cause of the illusion of agreement. If I'm one of those underwriters in the underwriting department of the insurance company, I truly think that I see the case in front of me the way it is. And that you know, the reason I see it that way is not because I'm projecting my biases or my views or my experiences, but because that's the way it is. And that's why I assume that someone else who is reasonable and well-educated and and not ill-intentioned in any way, must see it in roughly, if not exactly the same way that I see it, because that's how it is. We, we don't, as Danny was writing in his previous book, in fact, we don't go through life imagining alternatives to the way we see the world. Hmm. And that's a, a fairly profound psychological insight. It is, and it also impacts how people deal with uncertainty as well within my area so we get a, a, a similar kind of thing coming out with people not thinking about other alternatives to the situation as they're perceiving it at the time and the people who are really good with uncertainty tend to go looking for stories and examples 
that don't fit their model because they're trying yes. to find the reality of the situation as opposed to making the assumption that they're seeing reality, which quite a lot of people do, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. What I, I got fascinated in the book about noise audits. Could you just explain these and what the main elements of a noise audit are? Is The example of the underwriters that I was describing, how do we know that there was so much noise? Because we did a noise audit. The example of justice that I was talking about earlier, how do we know that there is noise in the judicial system? In that example, with the federal judges, 200 federal judges, that's a noise audit. So how does a noise audit work? You take a number of judges in the abstract sense of judgment. They could be federal judges, but they could also be underwriters in the insurance company. And you, you put them in different rooms so that they don't communicate. And you give them the same cases. And you ask them to independently give their judgments on the same cases. And you just measure the results. And that's when you discover how much noise there is. It could be, and the reason this is important is because it could be the case, we haven't seen it so far, but it could be the case that you find that it's okay. We have noise, of course, we have to have noise. This is a matter of judgment, but we think the amount of noise is tolerable. We, we can afford it. It's not a problem for our business or for our organization that we have to deal with. So this gives you a measure of the magnitude of the problem. It will also, and in most cases, it will, in fact, you know, convince people that something must be done. Without that evidence, people will say, in theory, we see the problem, but it can't be the case for us because we are different. We're so good. and <laughs> We're unique and, and wonderful, which everybody thinks they are. Yes. <laughs> yes, definitely. And, uh, once you've done a noise audit and you've found that you've got this variability of of judgment going on within a, an, an area of work what do you do about it you try to find remedies to noise that help you deal with the problem we we call this decision hygiene you try to put in place practices that promote decision hygiene which means that there is going to be less noise in your judgment we use this quaint metaphor of hygiene because noise is not a disease that you cure. A bias is a disease that you cure. You can say we have this bias, we're going to push back against it. But noise can go in all directions. So you need a prophylactic approach. You need an approach where you protect your decision from the many influences that could pollute it and, and create noise in all kinds of directions. How does that work? We've got a, a repertoire of techniques, a toolkit of techniques that in some situations may work and in others may not. And it takes some judgment to figure out which ones to use. By the way, that's one of the topics on which we do hope that more research will be done. Mm -hmm. One example, for instance, that is well known is aggregating independent judgments, taking the average of a bunch of judgments. That's the uh, well-known wisdom of crowds logic. We've talked about the danger of doing this without independence and of having social influence in the context of the judgments. If you can put that under control, aggregating multiple judgments is a pretty good way to reduce the problem of noise. It is, of course, costly. You can't have 
every patient be seen by six doctors and, and take the average of the judgments of the six doctors. It's going to be a bit expensive if you do that. So it doesn't apply to every situation, but it's one approach. Another approach that works wonders in many situations is to structure judgments, to introduce some sort of guidelines that tells people when you're meeting with candidates, for instance, we don't just want to know whether you like the candidate or whether you think the candidate is good or great for the job. Here are the three or the four or the five or the seven things on which we want you to rate the candidates and we want you to rate them separately on those dimensions. And by the way, on some of those dimensions, we might get the rating not from an interview, but from another data point. It might be a test. It might be a job sample experiment where we ask people to produce some of what they would have to do during their job. It might be the grades they got in school, if this is relevant. You know, it might be some sort of source of information that is separate and not polluted by the judgment you form in an interview. We can then combine this with aggregation by having multiple people opine on those different dimensions of the judgment and combine the structured judgment with the multiple independent judgments. And if we do that, we're going to have structured recruiting, which has been proven for many decades to be superior to the, the traditional unstructured interview. So that's another example. There are a few more, and you mentioned the importance of keeping a mindset where you go look for information that could contradict your beliefs and that would unsettle you a little bit. That's another one. There is a few more techniques like this, but the basic idea is put your decision process under control, introduce some discipline in it, try to be more rigorous in your thinking. And this is an unpopular thing to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. Don't view a situation of judgment as the place to express yourself. Don't view it as the place to express your individuality and to show your peers how right you are against them. If, if that's the way you view it, you are likely to add noise because if you expect people to agree with you, you might probably want to start by trying to agree with them. Yes, yeah. We see quite a lot of this in research where we get where there's quite a lot of work done on rater validity and reliability during tests and things where we've mm -hmm. got a lot of observers either watching something or doing interviews. And there's a lot of effort placed on trying to increase the rate of validity and reliability. It doesn't tend to no, happen in organizations. In, in that context, and, and for those of your listeners who are familiar with the terminology, noise is just the lack of reliability. Hmm. Yes. Of inter-rater yeah. reliability or intra-rater reliability, depending on mm. the type of noise. Yes, nice. Well, one of the things that you do talk about in the book is this idea of debiasing. And you see quite a lot of claims from kind of consultants and some educators that they can remove bias through educational and, and training processes. What, what are your thoughts about that? We are quite prudent about the potential for debiasing. We review some of the research that has tried to debias people. We find that not much of it has produced uh, lasting results. Not much of it has produced results that translate from one field to another, and not much of it has produced results on many biases. The problem 
the problems with debiasing are many fold. First, for all those reasons, it's very hard. Second, even if you could debias yourself on one particular bias, it's actually quite hard to know which bias to fight. And, and this is one of, the, one of the main reasons why we think for most real organizations, noise is a bigger problem than bias. It's very hard to know in which direction biases are going to pull you. Take a you know, classic and, and simple example. You make an acquisition. That means you're going to reallocate some resources from your core business to that acquisition that you are, or, or you're trying to launch a new business. Let's make this even simpler. You, you try to launch a new business. Are you a victim of status quo bias and deciding not to launch the business? Or are you a victim of overconfidence when you decide to launch the business? Now, after the fact, we can wait until it's a success. And if it fails, we'll say we were overconfident. <laughs> and, and if it succeeds, we'll say the people who didn't do it, unlike you, were victims of status quo bias and, and inertia in their resource allocation and, and some cost. Now, that's very easy to do after the fact. Before the fact, ex ante, how do you know which bias to combat? We, we find it very hard to give any easy prescriptive advice on how to fight bias in those kinds of complex decisions. To add some nuance to that, there are, of course, situations, some situations in which the general direction of bias is well known. If you are making a plan, we know the planning fallacy will probably lead you to be overconfident, not underconfident. If you are anchored on something, on some price, we know that's a pretty strong bias. But again, if I don't know on what, numbered, on what, on what number you've been anchored, I can't predict the direction of your bias. So a lot of these biases, to the extent that they're unpredictable, that their direction and their magnitude varies from one person to the next, are going to produce results that are essentially unpredictable and that are noise. What we do say that you can do about biases is watch or try to watch the decision process in real time, have someone who observes the decision process and see if in the right organizational climate and with the right you know, senior sponsoring, that person may be able to alert you to biases in your decision-making process in real time as it unfolds. If we have a hope for debiasing, it is that. It is not to say, let's identify the biases that we have and overcome them as individuals, because that doesn't work. It is not to say, let's identify the biases that we have as an organization and that have led us to make bad decisions because it's probably not easy to identify what those biases are. It's to have someone who is in a position to observe the decision process in real time and to say, aren't we victims of anchoring here? Aren't we victims of overconfidence here? And to keep people a little bit more honest in the process. Yes, I really like that idea of having a kind of a bias observer and a, a process observer. Uh, Some people call him or her a bias buster, which is another... The bias buster. <laughs> which, which I find quite fun, but you know, <laughs> decision yeah, so, observer is the term we think. I can just imagine it on people's passport, bias buster. 
Yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. Okay, just with the time and everything, I, I just like right at the end of the book, you ask a really interesting question. I'd like to turn that question around on to you. <laughs> and the question is, what would a less organisation, less noisy organisation be like? So I present that to you. We we present this in a sort of aspirational way, in, in, in a sort of I have a dream way, not that we're nearly as inspiring as, as the dream that evokes. But we keep saying noise is bad. We do realize that noise is not going away and that some of the remedies to noise, we haven't talked about that, have downsides. And that you can't say, let's bring noise down to zero everywhere. That would make for an entirely... Uh, in human world where everything would be automated and it's, it would be hell in many ways. So that should not be the aspiration. The aspiration should not be to, be to live in a noiseless world, but to live in a less noisy world, world in which some of the most important decisions are made in a somewhat more disciplined way. And getting there takes noise audits, as we've described, takes education in the sense that a lot of people, when they hear about noise, say, but it's beautiful, it's human nature, it's wonderful. And it's only when they realize, is it wonderful when it's your doctor who gets it wrong? That, that they realize that this romantic idea that diversity in human judgment is something great may not always be well advised. So it's going to take some work to get there. But our hope is that as people become aware of how much noise they, there is and how detrimental it is, they're going to put in place some of those measures that we're talking about, you know, prudently and carefully and making sure that they don't uh, overdo it and do more harm than good. And that this is going to result in systems in general being a little bit more reliable, a little bit more predictable, a little bit more just, and that this will save a lot of money, a lot of misery, and some lives. And bring about, hopefully, more accurate judgments between people within a system, and that exactly. the system's making better judgments. And as you say, crew in the cockpit, you want them making accurate judgments if something goes wrong and fast. That would be nice. <laughs> yeah, I'd quite like that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Olivier. Uh, how can people contact you? Well, thank you, David. This was fun. And thanks a lot for the opportunity. People can contact me on LinkedIn. That's the easiest way. Or through my email at HEC Paris, which is easy to find. It's lastname at hec.fr. Yeah, we'll put links to all of that in the show notes, everything. So this is the book Noise, Flaw in Human Judgment, published by HarperCollins, and it's out now. It's a really excellent and, and practical evidence-based read, which is why we're so interested in it. And yeah, fully recommended. It's, it's a very good read and certainly made me think. It's great. Thank you very much, Olivia. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Oxford Review podcast. For free research briefings, audio and video research briefings, research infographics and a whole lot more, visit oxford-review.com. That's oxford-review.com. And please subscribe, rate and review this podcast. It would mean a lot to us to have your feedback so that we can make this podcast even better for you. <laughs>